The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's episode, we are taking questions from YouTube because if you're not aware, we recently joined YouTube and it's going well. We actually had a meeting yesterday. Mate, I had such a great day yesterday on Medics Money, by the way, like just a great day. I mean, we still love being doctors, but I just had so much fun yesterday. I got to take my kids to school. I got to the gym, did a ton of Medics Money work, hanging out with you. So great day yesterday. Yeah, no, it was really good. Absolutely. Really today, yesterday was quite good to meet up. But we've been getting a ton of questions in the YouTube comments section. And actually, this is a really great place to ask us questions. And we love answering questions there. Of course, like you, we're out there working flat out. So we can't answer every single question. It's just not possible. But we do answer, I think, the majority of them for now. We'll see how that goes. And it is a great place to ask questions. So if you're watching this on YouTube, and you got any questions, just drop them in the comments. Other way to ask us a question is to send us an email to team at medicsmoney.co.uk and we love voice memos. But today we've got three questions. One on what does payment on account do and how does it work for self-assessment? The other question is about do we like to invest in gold, which is a great question. And the final question is going to be about the changes to corporation tax and marginal rates, which is like our pet project. So shall we kick off with payment on account? Because self-assessment season has just passed. Filing deadline was 31st of January. What yeah. date did you file yours on, by the way? So I filed it on the night of the 30th and I paid my tax on the 31st. So maybe cutting it a little bit fine, but in the the deadline, that's the main thing. You filed earlier this year, hey? But yeah, actually, in fairness, I filed earlier than last year, which was exactly on the 31st. I I did my dad's tax return, you know, four days early. So that was good. He was pleased. It's not recommended behavior. Obviously, you have a unique skill set in that you are an accountant as well. You file your own, but please do not leave it that late to file. I know that's <laughs> yeah, doctors will. Yeah. We always leave everything to the last minute. But Yeah, don't follow my example. Yeah, don't follow his example. Question one was from a YouTube video we did for Locum GP. So actually, I think about self-assessment, actually. It says, mm-hmm. great talk and very informative. Thanks. I'm a full-time Locum GP self-employed i wonder what does payment on account mean i was looking for some advice about it and what i know is that it's 500 five thousand pounds sorry we need to pay yearly on top of tax pensions and ni question marks thank you over to you mate yeah thanks so much for the question and i'm really glad that you enjoyed the talk so the payment on account system is basically the way in which hmrc collect taxation for individuals who have less than 80% of their income collected at source. So for a lot of doctors, for example, their income tax will be collected at source via their payslips. So they're unlikely to have to worry at all about this payment on account system. But if you're self-employed, a partner, if you've got significant rental income or significant dividend income or anything where the government can't get their money straight away off you, you know, this is where the payment on account system will come into play. Okay, so if you take, for example, someone who's self-employed, like a GP locum, but it could be anyone who's self-employed, you'll earn a taxable profit. Tax will not be collected at source on that taxable profit. So you're going to fall into this payment on account scheme. And that basically means that HMRC will think to themselves, we don't want to keep waiting till every January to collect our tax from you. 
we want you to start paying some money in advance so we can collect your tax a bit early okay so the first year in which you locum or the first year in which you have significant rental income or significant dividends or whatever reason it is that you fall into the payment on account system the first tax year nothing much kind of changes really you go up to the 5th of april and then you pay your tax on the 31st of january the following year okay now at this point hmrc will say okay we now know how much tax you owe for that tax year thank you very much we don't want to wait a whole year until january for more money from you so we're going to charge you up front some of that tax that you're going to owe next year okay now they have no idea how much tax you're going to be paying in a year's time nobody does you may have some inkling maybe you know that your profit's going to go up or down whatever but most people have no idea and hmrc are just the same so what they say is they pretend that the following year you're going to have exactly the same tax bill and what they then say is thank you very much dr vlogs you paid us x amount of money this january we're going to ask you for a payment in advance for the following january and that's going to be 50 percent of your current tax bill and then in july you pay another 50 percent so that by july you would have paid a whole amount that tax that was due in january you'll be paying that all over again half in january half in july and when it does get to finally to that year next year they will deduct the amounts you paid against your actual tax bill okay so as an example if you did have you know taxable profits that led to a tax bill in january of five thousand pounds then uh, what the HMRC will say is okay we're going to pretend that next january you'll be filing your tax return and have again five thousand pounds in tax to pay so we want 50 percent this january and 50 percent in july so you pay your five thousand pounds in january and then 50 percent on top of that so 2,500 again in January. So your tax bill is actually 7,500, not the 5,000 that you actually owe. And then in July, you'll pay another 2,500. So you'll basically paid 5,000 pounds in advance of the following July, okay? The following January, sorry. So just to say, that's how the payment on account system works, okay? And then, you know, so that's what it's doing. Just to say, so it's not a case of, you know, a fixed 5,000 pounds that you pay yearly on top of your tax pensions NI. It's a way that HMRC get you to pay your tax for the next year in advance, which could be any amount, okay? So if your tax bill is £1,000, they'll ask you for £500 on top of what you pay, and then £500 in July, okay? So it's not a fixed amount. It's based on your tax bill in that January. Hopefully that makes some sense. Does that make sense, Tommy, do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's something that we never get taught. It's not well explained and it can definitely catch you out in your first years of being self-employed, self-assessment. A good accountant should guide you through this. And I think as a sort of general kind of ballpark rule, everyone's situation is different, but their accountants generally advise you to keep about 30 to 35%, depending on student loans, et cetera, back to cover that bill. Because as if you've always been PAYE and your tax just gets taken off and then what lands in your account is your spending money, can be a bit of a shock when you get everything in there and then a bit later hmrc are like can you pay me all that money back basically yeah yeah definitely and here's a you know this is a very quick you know example real life example i've got a really good friend who he's not self-employed but he got a bought a second property so again rental income and was expecting x amount of you know tax to be due so i think he was actually withholding sort of 40 percent on the rental property just for that tax year he had no idea what comes in account and you know why would he nobody tells him about it nobody tells you anything about this sort of stuff so he got absolutely stung by a big tax bill and said to me, oh, Ed, what, what is this? Why am I paying so much tax? And I had to explain to him, look, it's your payment on account. And he didn't actually have the money to pay for that. He had to like do a payment plan with HMRC and so on. So just, 
yeah, try not to get caught out by that. It's something that nobody teaches you. It's, it can be quite painful if you're not careful. Yeah, but great question. So thanks for the question. I think the yeah. next question is for me. Absolutely. So I'm going to read the question out to you, Tommy. So it says, hey, Menix Money, on a slightly unrelated topic, where do you stand on gold ETFs within your portfolios? So over to you, Tommy. All right. Great question. And yeah, great question. Hard to answer without giving investment advice. And this is absolutely not investment advice. This is just my thoughts on the question. So gold ETFs or exchange traded funds, that's what ETF stands for, for those that aren't aware, can be a convenient and low cost way for you to invest in gold. So if we think about gold, there's a few ways that I can think of that you can buy gold. So you could buy physical gold, like gold bars. And the downside of that is that you have to store it, I assume in some kind of safe or vault, and also insure it. Okay, so it's a bit of a hassle. You'd also have to pay tax on that gold as well, unless you niche tax knowledge. This could be tax trivia, mate, actually. I don't want to take your thunder. But if you buy gold sovereigns from the Royal Mint, they have a face value and they are exempt from CGT and VAT, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. So because they're more sort of cash, which there's no CGT or VAT on, as opposed to assets like gold bullion, for example, where you would have CGT and VAT. Nice. So bars has got... Gold bars has got CGT, VAT, but sovereigns from the Royal Mint, no CGT and VAT. So tax trivia, love it. So if you don't want to store gold by buying bars or coins, then that's where a gold exchange traded fund comes in. And just to remind you, a fund is something that allows you to invest in gold indirectly. And also another point is you could hold that gold exchange traded fund inside your tax efficient ISA wrapper, which we do talk about ISAs a bit. Mm -hmm. And again, for those that aren't aware, just to remind you, a fund is a collection of assets, in this case, gold, and you could just purchase a share of that fund. And ETFs in particular trade ex almost exactly like shares. You can just buy a share of that ETF. So that's how you could buy gold. But neither of us hold any gold and i want you to understand why we don't hold any gold so that you can make your own decisions about whether you should buy any gold so why do some people invest in gold traditionally gold is thought of as a way to diversify your portfolio and also a defensive asset and a store of value and i think all or most investment portfolios could benefit from some defensive assets so i'm going to explain those terms for those that aren't aware. So a quick summary of diversification, like what is diversification? In short, it means don't put all your eggs in one basket, okay? If you spread out your investments across a wide range of investments, then if one goes down, the other goes up, overall, you're still winning. And if you're all overall still winning, whatever happens, you're in a good position. So I might use my little example of the ice cream company. So Let's imagine you're looking to invest and you want to invest in an ice cream company. Okay, so you've got three pounds to invest. You could put that whole three pounds into the ice cream company. And then if you have a good summer, then you're going to be doing great. Your three pounds is probably going to grow. Okay. But if you don't have a good summer and it's not sunny, people aren't going to want ice creams. So then you've got to think, okay, if people don't want ice creams, how could I diversify and decrease my risk a bit? If it's not a good summer, maybe they'd want to buy umbrellas, okay? So you could put some of your money into ice creams and some into umbrellas. And therefore, if it's a hot summer, ice creams will do well, you're sorted. If it's a rainy summer, umbrellas will do well, happy days. 
But then you're like, okay, I need to diversify further. What if it's a cold summer? So you could think, okay, I'm going to put one pound into ice cream, one pound into umbrellas and one pound into warm jumpers. Okay. Therefore, you've diversified, you've spread your risk across ice creams, warm jumpers and umbrellas. And therefore, whatever happens, pretty much not guaranteed, obviously, but whatever happens, you're going to be winning. Okay. And I think it's important when you are looking to diversify, what you're looking for is assets that are negatively correlated. And what I mean by that is when one goes up, the other goes down. So ice cream and umbrellas could be negatively correlated because if it's sunny ice creams are going to go up and umbrellas are going to go down so does that make sense mate as an explanation of diversification yeah yeah absolutely it does yeah you're looking slightly more interested than when i talk about emergency funds i'm assuming that this is tickling your interest so i'm going to carry on so i think gold can fulfill that criteria as diversification because it's often thought of as a, a safe haven gold. So in general, not advice, but when inflation is high and therefore cash is losing its value like now, or there's global instability like now because you know there's a terrible conflict going on in Ukraine, in general, gold would do quite well in those situations and stocks, shares would not do so well. So you could think gold is negatively correlated with stocks and shares. So you're thinking, hold on, why why do these guys not hold any gold? Because I do not hold any gold. I know that you don't either. And the reason is we both have a very long investment horizon. We're relatively young in investment terms. We've probably got another 20 or 30 years of investing ahead of us. And we hold a well-diversified as I've just explained to you, low cost, but reasonably high risk portfolio. And by high risk, I mean, we hold only stocks. We don't hold any bonds. We don't hold any gold. We don't hold any crypto. So it's pretty much pure stocks. And the reason for that is that in general, investing, higher risk in general means a greater return. Okay, not always, you have to be careful, but in general, okay. And so over the long term, equities or stocks will massively or have massively outperformed gold. Past performance is not indicated of future performance. Keep the regulators happy there. And also the other thing I don't like about gold and crypto is that it's what's called a non-productive asset. If I own a share in a company, it makes goods or services. And over time, that can compound, okay, Gold doesn't really do anything. It's a non-productive asset. And so therefore, it doesn't compound over time and it cannot generate compound interest. And if you've listened to us enough now, you know that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Okay, so hopefully that explains a sort of coherent way why we don't hold any gold. But all of our financial situations are different. And the right investment portfolio for me or Ed might not be the right one for you. And I think one thing that's often overlooked, especially on the internet where everyone just seems to be holding the same portfolio, is the right portfolio for you is the one that you can live with, that you can stick with through thick and thin and that you are confident in. And when, not if, but when a crash comes, because that's the nature of investing, things go up as well as down. When a crash comes, you don't get scared and sell low and buy high. You just stick with it. Okay. So, you know, when inflation is rampant and someone's trying to start a war in, well, they have started a war in Ukraine, having some gold in your portfolio, if that means that you don't get scared and your portfolio will be less volatile and more stable, and that allows you to sleep at night and not panic, then gold might be right for you. Okay. So everyone's situation is different. Do your own research. Gold's not for me. 
Finally, and I don't think this gets talked about enough, but I think it's pretty relevant to doctors. And again, this is my opinion, not advice, but I think doctors and anyone with an NHS pension should think about investing a bit differently because the NHS pension gives you a state-backed guaranteed index-linked income for life in retirement, okay? That is a very defensive asset, okay? The most defensive asset out there, like way better than gold, okay? So given this kind of unique situation, why would we, with NHS pension, follow the same investment strategy as someone whose entire pension is riding on the stock market, okay? If my, and just to clarify, the NHS pension does not depend on the stock market returns. It's a guaranteed index-linked income for life, okay? So if my pension relied on the stock market, which my NHS pension does not, I would invest very differently to how I currently invest because I need to be invest, way more defensive. I might own bonds. I might even own gold, right? Because my entire future is riding on that and I can't afford to take a high risk. But actually, for us, you know, fortunate position to be in, part of being a doctor is, you know, it's a part of our overall reward package. We have an NHS pension. And so my investment portfolio is pretty much a side pot. I have the guaranteed index linked income for life via my NHS pension. And then I've got my investment portfolio on the side, which is actually quite literally, I think, a get out of jail free card, get out of NHS jail early. And my plan is that will allow me to retire earlier than my NHS pension age, which if you're in the 2015 scheme, mostly like we are, then your NHS pension age is linked to state retirement age. So I don't know what you think about that, mate, about whether doctors should invest with a different mindset because we have this ultimately defensive asset. But what I would say is maybe a gold ETF is right for you. Do your own research, you know, get advice. It's a great question and I hope it helps. I mean, what do you think? Do you buy gold? Let us know in the comments. Should we invest differently due to our NHS pension? Let us know in the comments. But also, I'm interested in your opinion, mate. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the NHS pension is, as you say, is so great. Again, we're not giving advice here. I think we've asked so many of our sort of interventional financial advisors that we work with what they think of it. And they all all say how great it is and how they can't replicate that in the private markets. So the NHS pension is such a great investment that we've already got. And just going back to the whole gold thing in general, I mean, yeah, as you said, it is seen as a very defensive asset. It's seen as a kind of a go-to whenever the world's in turmoil, you often see the price of gold just go up because it's seen as like a safe haven for investments, for money, for cash. But as you say, it doesn't produce dividends. It doesn't produce interest. And overall, in the long term, it's seen as it lags the stock markets. So I don't invest in gold for my own personal reasons that I like the idea that the stock markets are going to give me better returns overall so that's why i do it like like you were saying earlier so yeah as you say everyone should do their own research it might be right for you it might not be right for you there are some advantages definitely but that's all a matter of personal circumstances but probably not for me i think yeah exactly i love talking about investing i could talk about investing all day long so if you like more investing chat just let us know in the comments because i think investing is really interesting and is a great question so thank yeah. you for it Mate, I know that you're excited about asking this question and yeah. it is a ridiculously technical question. Now, when I first saw this question, I thought, uh-oh, Ed's made a mistake. I mean, it doesn't happen often, if at all, but I thought, oh, maybe Ed's made a mistake. But I think you're about to demonstrate that you haven't made a mistake, but it is a great question. So it says, hi, great video. Can I clarify the point about marginal rate corporation tax for income between 50,000 and 250,000? Not sure where this 26.5% rate came from. 
My understanding was that corporation tax will be even 19% for income below 50,000 and 25% for income above 250,000. Anything in the middle will be at a marginal rate, but I was not clear at what percentage. I thought and hoped it was going to be less than 25%. Is the 26.5% corporation official rate or for any income between 50,000 and 250,000? Great question. Pretty technical. Hit us. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, sadly, it isn't a mistake. That 26.5% rate is a correct rate, but you have to differentiate between the absolute tax rates and what we call the marginal tax rate, which is the rate at which you pay tax on the additional one pound, in this case, of profit okay, for corporation tax. You know, what's that famous phrase about, you know, about the road to a certain place being paved with good intentions? The problem is in the tax system is often HMRC or the government, sorry, will try and do something that they think is a good idea and it just will have some unintended consequences. And that's what's happening here. Okay, so just as a bit of background, currently there's one corporation tax rate for all companies and that's 19% on the company's taxable profits. So nice and simple. But because of the, let's say, the state of the public finances, the corporation tax main rate is going to increase to 25% from the 1st of April of this year. Okay, so 1st of April 2023. And that's for companies with profits over £250,000. Okay, at the same time, what they did was they carved out and they created something called the small profits rate, which is going to be 19% for all companies with profits of up to £50,000. So up to £50,000 of taxable profit you're going to pay corporation tax at 19%, just as you are right now. Above 250,000, you're going to be paying this new rate of 25%. So the question was, you know, what would happen to a company who's got profits between those two amounts? So between 50,000 and 250,000. So the way they decided to deal with that creates what we call a marginal tax rate, okay? A special type of marginal tax rate here. So the amount of tax that the company pays you basically work it out by multiplying your profits by the main rate, so 25%, and then deducting something called marginal relief. Okay, so they've created a fraction. Okay, so for the current, you know, the current tax year or next tax year, sorry, when the rate applies, this marginal relief fraction, they've just said is three divided by 200. Okay, and you use that fraction to multiply the difference between 250,000 and the actual profits of the company. Okay, so if my profits of the company were, you know, £60,000, you know, you'll be paying less tax overall than you would if you had £240,000. Okay, if you work through what happens to the corporation tax figures, and it's a bit difficult, you know, for a podcast to really go through this. So hopefully there's a bit of trust here. But if you work out what happens when you have a profit between £50,000 and £250,000, you work out the absolute tax rate based on their fraction that they've created, you basically find out that the tax rate of earning an extra pound of profit turns out to be 26.5%. You know, it's not an official rate. The official rates are 19% and 25%, but it's a consequence of the mechanism in which the government have created to calculate the tax in between those two profit thresholds. So hopefully you can see the difference between the absolute rates, 19% or 25%, and the marginal rate on that extra pound for those companies in between those two profit thresholds. And it's a little bit like for individuals. So we've, we talk all the time on Medics Money about individuals who've got a salary between £100,000 and £125,140. 
you know, technically the absolute tax rate in that amount of money is 40%. That's the actual official legal tax rate. But because in that salary range or income range, the government begin to withdraw your personal allowance, your marginal tax rate is 60%. So 60% nowhere, you'll never find 60% in the legislation anywhere. It's not an official rate of tax, but it's a marginal tax rate because of the consequence of what happens when the government withdraw your personal allowance as your income goes up between 100,000 and 12,540. Okay, so we are quite obsessed by marginal tax rates, as I'm sure lots of you will, will be aware. I think we have a whole podcast devoted to it, episode 112, all about it. I'm sure we've got loads of blogs on it, and I pretty mention it every single time I appear on any podcast or YouTube video. Tell me, he's probably getting sick of it, but it's just really really important to know your absolute tax rate and your marginal tax rate may not be the same. And this corporation tax rate is a good example here. Mate, I'm not sick of it at all. That was awesome. I mean, that is technical, but I think the reason why we're a bit obsessed with it is everyone is being asked to do extra work at the moment. And if you're going to do extra work, you're going to spend extra time at a job that you already work hours and hours at high intensity already. You're probably going to miss spending time with your family or your friends, okay? And you need to understand how much you will get in your pocket, okay? Not what the headline rate of pay is, but what you get in your pocket at the end of that shift. Because if you're going to do really hard work in really difficult circumstances on top of an already really long working week, okay, you need to understand it. And if you look at that podcast that Ed mentioned, or the blog article's great. It's got a really technical breakdown of how it works and and even got a nice little pie chart, which we love. You know, in that we show how £100 of, you know, £100 an hour, that is a great rate of pay, okay? But guess what? After marginal tax rate deduction, a student loan deduction, let's not forget about that, like student loans, I could go to town on that, I won't. National insurance, that £100 in your headline rate just becomes about, I think you said like 17 or £15 in your pocket or less. Yeah, it comes down to a, an outrageously low amount when you take into account all those things and the pension and so on. Absolutely. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much for interacting on our YouTube channel. If you're not subscribed to the channel, definitely subscribe. It helps us to grow the channel and help more doctors and dentists and nurses and physios and everyone that's writing into us. If you've got any questions, chuck them in the comments section on YouTube and we will do our very best to get to them. As I said, we try to answer everything. <laughs> It's pretty busy out there at the moment. I don't need to tell you that. So if we don't answer your question, I apologize, but we will do as many as we can. Thanks so much for listening. If you're on YouTube, thanks so much for watching. I think that's a wrap, mate. Great work. Yeah, cool, yeah. Thanks, guys. Take care, everyone. Let's see you on the next one. And don't forget to subscribe.